Uh, it's still running, so here's what we're talking about. Seven minutes since you left. Where you are now, astronomer. Out in the galaxy. Okay. Um, Anthony, what's that saying? Is that your name? Uh, he shortened the title, he said, to something else. But the, the first title was... was what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? And the subtitle, uh, A Look at Christian Philosophy. Um, so I just read this paper to you. That, that's all I'm going to do. And then we talk. What does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? In the third century, the church father, Tertullian, asked this famous question. The question coming out of the relation between an expanding Christianity and the Greco-Roman culture is still today just as important as it was then. What does the Academy of Plato and all the schools of philosophy that flowed out of it have to do with Jerusalem, the religious origin, as it were, of Jewish and Christian faith? Through <coughs> the history of the church, there have been three main positions in relation to Tertullian's question. And I hope you can follow on the handout here. The first one is arguing for separation, saying Athens and Jerusalem are worlds apart, uh, meaning reason and, and faith, really, and that's what we're talking about. On this side, uh, arguing for separation, we have, besides Tertullian himself, people like Bernard of Clairvaux and Thomas of Akempis and other great mystics. But we also have many revivalists, charismatics and contemporary evangelicals here as well. A second position, a sort of mid-position, is arguing for harmony. In this camp we have the early church father Justin the Martyr, Augustine, Aquinas and the mainline reformers like Luther and Calvin, and more or less the whole Roman Catholic tradition. To the right of this position uh, we have the ones who want to assimilate philosophy with theology, reason and faith, maybe to such a degree that reason outdo faith and is more important than faith. Among these we have mainly rationalists like Descartes, Locke, Hegel, Leibniz, though some understand the whole Roman Catholicism and the medieval tradition as a, with Aquinas as... There we have one more. Wonderful. I'll wait for that. It come back to you. There, one more. Hi there. Join in, otherwise, if you have time. Okay. Good luck trying it. Someone more coming? Okay. Wow. Well. Hold on. They hear this on the internet, maybe. Well, uh, so we have three positions. That's really what I'm saying. We have separation, harmony, and the ones who want to assimilate philosophy and, and theology of faith and reason. So these are the three main positions we have. But having mapped out these historical camps, we have not really come very far. And I, I'm pleased to tell you that you have not come here for a history lesson. What I want to do is to explore the possibility of a Christian philosophy in trying to answer Tertullian's question. 
That is basically, as I take it, either a Christian philosophy is either the idea of a Christian doing philosophy or a Christian philosophy per se. Moreover, I would like to extend this exploration not only to the discipline of philosophy or alternative to theology, but to all scholarship and hard thinking, no matter the subject, inside or outside academia. So, to frame my question in the broadest possible fashion, it would be something like, what does it mean to be a thought-through Christian? Or in relationship to university students, what does it mean to be a Christian student of biochemistry, literature, economics, philosophy, or history, or whatever? So this is my scope, really. Uh, but my primary example will nevertheless, for most part, be philosophy. So forgive me for that. Uh, hopefully, this is not arbitrary, though, uh, an arbitrary start starting point, since philosophy, in a certain sense, have a more, always had a more independent role to other areas of thought and practice, like a bird's eye view on, on reality. Not God's eye view, but a bird's eye view. And what is more important, and something I hope will be evident soon, is that all thinking and practice in life have something with philosophy to do in one or another way. So, but to answer, to, to get more to the point, what is really the question here? What is the question? One, if one wants to think about a Christian philosophy, the first question coming to one's mind might be, what does what can philosophy do for Christianity? What help is philosophy for Christianity? But I'm actually more interested in the reverse of this question. What can Christianity do for philosophy? Uh, it was the question that, for instance, Aquinas, who argued for, the har for harmony between Jerusalem and Athens, uh, asked at the outset of his famous Summa Theologica. He did not ask whether philosophy was an okay or pure discipline. It was simply his starting point. It has also been so for many Christians uh, since the early church. And today we have many of the greatest philosophers being Christians, or at any rate religious or open to the religious. Uh, to name a few, William Alston, Alvin Plantinga, John Haldane, and the rock and roll couple of, of Christian philosophy, Robert and Marilyn McCord. We have Thomas Flint, Peter van Inwagen, Eleanor Stump, Richard Swinburne, and many more, many more. The strongly anti-religious climate of professional philosophy that dominated Europe just 50 years ago has now changed in a very interesting way. Why is this so? Well, it is not my primary intent to give an explanation for this development, though I thought it is appropriate to point it out here at the outset. Rather, my primary intent is to give voice to this development. This revival in philosophy reaches across denominational markers, all sharing in the common idea that Christianity actually can and should inform the way we do philosophy, as well as everything else in life. To even start to talk about a genuine Christian philosophy or Christian scholarship or thinking of any kind, we therefore need to first realize that Christianity as such does not just pertain to a certain spiritual, private or privileged sphere in another reality. The starting point needs to be this. Is, if Christianity is true, it is true for all of reality shared by all human beings. The categories, for instance, of time and space, the material universe, should not need to be rejected as a part of a common reality. Rather, they should be affirmed since the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ in time and space 
is a central part of classical Christianity. But a Christian philosophy, philosophy, whatever that will come down to, should not either naively, uh, neither naively be uh, equated with the Christian life. As such, one should neither draw the conclusion that all Christians uh, are Christian philosophers. In fact, many people, as I said in the beginning, would find such a title an offense to faith. That is not the point here. The embarrassing, trivial point is that Christian philosophy is something in its own right, as a sphere of human life without occupying all of life. Christian life is something more. It is someone holding the basic, basic truths of classic Christianity true and putting one's trust in them as if they were about him or her. This can be done without one becoming a professional thinker or philosopher. Christian philosophy is namely secondarily secondary in nature. It builds on the foundation on Christian beliefs. After all, this is also trivial. Most philosophical endeavors are basically founded on pre-philosophical convictions. For instance, relativism, or someone being a relativist, is often this because he had that opinion before he started to, to philosophy. What philosophy can do is to argue with and from this position. But surely, and less trivial maybe, there are at the same time some beliefs that arise from philosophical reflection. I, for instance, personally believe that the world consists of substances that have a certain nature that can take on both necessary and accidental attributes. Despite the, the technical language, this is a view I have come to form and, and, and hold on to from my philosophical studies just as some of you might be a defender of string theory from studying physics or generative grammar from studying linguistics. I don't know what would be the equivalent for you guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like um, the Roman Catholic Like bread and wine. They use the same kind of language. But how, how is What's that? It's a liar. Yeah, it's it's, it's sort of. Uh, so how would you mean like? I know what you mean by substance, but how would you mean by accident? Well, it, it is a, a property something has that it doesn't have that all all the time. It is really talking so like talking about change. So like example, you, before you yeah accident and well yeah I, I believe the soul have some some accidental attributes in some way but but I say this share here was once not a share it was a piece of wood yeah. uh, but now it has just it's, it's very simple now it comes to take on the proper other properties and, and have the form of a share it's very basic it, it is trivial in one sense and as I said, the technical language could put you off, and I will talk more about that. But that is really what I mean. It's nothing complicated in one sense. Normally, uh, at least, these beliefs that we take on from philosophy, uh, uh, we do not have to find in absolute conflict with the Christian foundation. These are beliefs rising out of specialization, being, becoming a specialist within a certain field of knowledge. So wherein does the conflict lie, if there is any? 
This question leads us to the next point of, point of uh, consideration when defending and defining the concept of Christian philosophy. And here we come to point three, uh, the formal and material side of philosophy. So let's start with the formal side. Though we are all familiar with the word philosophy uh, and have some sort of grasp of its content and attach different connotation to it, that is, uh, that it carries certain personal and emotional content from our history with and experience with this word. Irrespective of the positive and negative uh, connotation you might attach to philosophy, I would like to suggest that it is helpful to view philosophy from two basic perspectives. And the first being uh, philosophy as a method of thinking. A method of thinking. Uh, this involves thinking logically, rationally, basically. And this formal side of philosophy can be divided then into logic and rhetorics. Uh, logic dealing with the basic forms of thoughts, really, uh, how we think. And it is not something extra outside of uh, normal human life. And rhetorics, the way we speak and, and defend and articulate our ideas. So these two things being the sort of toolbox of philosophy for analyzing the world and engage with it. For instance, the basic rule, uh, logical rule, uh, if A, then B, A, therefore B. I won't do a logic class with you. <laughs> uh, this, this is one of the basic thought patterns we have, and we learn it really from from a very early age. I think it's, it's in a natural and it's an inherent way of thinking for us. Uh, an even more basic logical idea is the, the idea of bivalence or the excluded mi middle it is the intuitive and very basic idea that every proposition can be either true or false. Uh, and there is nothing like a third or an in-between truth value. But talking about formalities like this, like logic and arguments, is normally very trivial and not too exciting, uh, unless if you're of a certain mentality. Still many people have benefited from a short excursus in uh, argumentation theory so that they can spot good and bad arguments in newspapers and media. When philosophical formalities get exciting for most of us, uh, it is when we can see the obvious inconsistencies between the same politicians or perhaps teachers in this university's statements based on invalid rules for drawing conclusion or their use of unlawful arguments in debates. Unfortunately, is not logic classes a prerequisite for being a public person. But why this excursus in the territory of basic logic and argumentation? Because it is illustrating the universality and practical use of the formal side of philosophy. The formal side does not normally rise out of philosophical thinking. Rather, it is presupposed by the philosopher that there is such a thing as reason, logic and things, and we normally use them. What philosophy does is to take these basic intuitions and think harder about them. Uh, but there are, of course, objections to this. Uh, and one common Christian objection to this is that the Bible does not use the language of a philosopher. Have you heard that? It is one of the sort of intuitive um, objections to a Christian philosopher, at least. Well, it's like 
when you look at something like the Trinity, you know, mm-hmm. you can't really put in lots of logic. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. <laughs> Bear with me. Uh, here it all depends on what kind of philosophical language that is referred to, obviously. So take the book of Proverbs, for instance, in the Bible. It could easily be a good candidate for a philosophical language of a kind, though not using logical language, if you see what I mean. It doesn't talk about log- logic. Uh, but if one means the analytical and systematic character of British philosophy is so prevalent even today, the objection is undoubtedly true. Uh, Nowhere in the Bible one can find the, the technical language of, say, look with Wittgenstein or anything like that. But if the objection is merely about the style of language or tone of voice or degree of abstraction, it is harder to justify. Are only the kinds of linguistic styles and genres found in the Bible valid modes of talking or, or communicating? Even if there are many linguistic modes or literary forms in the Bible, we have poetry, we have prose, we have letters, treaties, chronologies, and we have arguments of of even philosophical kind. Should the Christian, the true Christian, be confined to these in his or her expression? I think not. If we open that Pandora's box, we would only be able to talk in the way of the Bible. So I think it is not about the way you talk, really, or the, 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 the language you use, primarily. I'm, I'm going to read, I think you have the, the quote there by John Haldane. Would someone like to read it? The, the first part and then I comment. Um, yeah? It's no good to say that the problems of philosophy have become technical, or that the discoveries have left the layman's understanding far behind. Philosophical reflection begins with questions that intelligent and speculatively minded people ask. And I would say all people ask them, and especially children, if you've seen a child, they ask these kinds of questions. There's a profound mystery about the world, and they have this sense of wonder. That's the thing. Was it Plato who spoke about, you know, you have to have a child's eyes to see something as if you'd never seen it before? Uh, I believe... Oh, yeah. He, he, I, I, I don't know if he said that, but it sounds very platonic <laughs> in one sense. Yeah, definitely, it's, it's, it's in his spirit. And I think Haldane's next remark is, is important. Would, would you like to read it, David? Um, however protracted, specific or technical the pursuit of answers may become, it should still be possible to formulate the substance of answers in terms of all the intelligible, too intelligent, and speculative, ordinary people. Ordinary people, sorry, go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think so. That's my comment. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying that what he's calling intelligent and speculative-minded people are all people. Okay. Everyone has questions. He says it's better than I can do. British good philosopher. So, the material side of philosophy instead. Uh, the objection against the formal use of philosophy cannot stand, stand as I take it, in, in this sense. Um, 
Are there other ways of construing an objection, if we want that, to, to Christian philosophy? We have at this point, I believe, uh, taken enough time in the excursus of the formal side of philosophy. So let, let's therefore turn to the philo- uh, to philosophers' material side, dealing with philosophical content, because I think the more substantial objection is found here. This is namely primarily a question concerning philosophical content as well as the personal motivation for anyone supporting a certain philosophical idea or content. This domain of philosophy could also be divided up, I think, helpfully in the, in the classical parts, as you have here, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. So let's just go through those so we, we know what we're talking about. Metaphysics, or ontology, deals with reality, what we have right here and what we have beyond it, what we can see and what we not can see, reality by and large. And it also deals with questions like, are we free or are we determined? Uh, is there a God? What is time? And all of these things. That's metaphysics, the big questions. Then we have epistemology. How do we get to know this reality? What are the sources for this knowledge and all that? What is knowledge, really? And we have ethics or morals. I think you are more familiar with that concept normally. What is right and wrong? What is the true good? How should we live politics in, in, together in society or in groups? Often, uh, these three things come together at the same time uh, within a certain view. Um, and as, um, yeah, a worldview is, uh, is answering all these questions. This is also often what we call a philosophy, a school of thought, or a worldview. It is more or less a complete package answering the basic questions of metaphysics, what is reality, epistemology, how can we know it? And ethics, how should we live? Answering these questions <clears throat> and other related important questions in one or another way on different levels of sophistication is engaging in philosophy and expressing a, vo- a worldview. Most of us are selective and do not uh, follow a complete system or complete package. In our postmodern society, the reaction ab- against complete system has given a new situation where we're rather supposed to pick and choose uh, and not look for a consistent worldview. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. Say you claim to be a Christian and at the same time hold to the basic aspects of Hegelianism. Anyone heard of Hegel before? I will tell you. Hegel was a German philosopher living in the 1800s. Yeah, sort of a pantheist, yeah. Yeah, you just heard the name at least, so so it's not completely unfamiliar. Exactly, that's right, yeah. So Hegelianism says that the world and God are ultimately one, and that the world is evolving from lower to higher state on all levels, primarily ethically. The common idea of something being either true or not uh, is actually um, um, let's see here true or not I, that is the excluded middle as I referred to is replaced with a, an included middle truth is actually a, a synthesis between thesis and antithesis as you mentioned David this means that Hegelianism is a certain brand of philosophy a certain school with a name content that provides answers for the, uh, for the basic philosophical questions of life 
This is a worldview implying impersonal evolution and monism, that is, everything is one. Not very unlike the methodology and presupposition of, of contemporary natural science. It actually were some very similar presuppositions. Christian theism, on the contrary, is, is classically taken to be uh, uh, including personal creation by three personal God, distinct from the world, the opposite of impersonal uh, evolution and monism. Moreover, Christian seem, Christianity seems to affirm that there are things that are either true or false, uh, and that the world rather is declining than evolving, but that the Creator has set out to redeem His creation. So it's a completely different story, completely different worldview. So here we need to ask Tertullian's question again in an updated form. What does Jerusalem have to do with Berlin, i.e. the town where Hegel was, uh, did most of his work? There seems namely to be a fundamental conflict between the thought of Hegel and that of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob or Jesus and Paul. So many Christians have taken on a more or less explicit Hegelian coat and tried to wear it uh, on at the same time it pr they pretended to be Christians. And if you want to have an interesting study in whatever topic you're doing, study the, the, uh, the influence of Hegelian thought in our day. It doesn't have to, you don't have to read all of Hegel because it's almost inintelligible sometimes. But it's a really interesting journey how to understand our own culture, where the roots are and all that. It sneaked, it sneaked in. Well, the, the whole idea that truth is in the middle um, is, is, is a very prevalent... Yeah. And we're talking about ultimate realities here. We're not talking about if we can know it or not. Really. Can you have a consistent view of I don't think so. But, but look at our society and look at how people think and look at the similarities. It's, it's an interesting and fascinating study. Postmodern theory is, is not essentially, but is definitely Hegelian. I would say, yeah. Basically, the same battle the early Christians had to fight in the Gnostic, Gnostic philosophies of its day. I, I'll, I'll explain that now. The same conflicting ideas were meeting: impersonal versus uh, impersonal versus personal, emanation versus creation. That is the idea of an outflow without any idea or intent behind it. So What's that? Yeah. yeah. Well, it is just flowing out of it. It's not an intentional act. It is just happening, yeah. like determinism. Yeah, yeah. It ties together with pantheism. Hi there. Good to have you here. Yeah. 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 That's what I'm saying. That, that, that's right. Hi there. What's your name? Uh, Eugene. Eugene. We're talking about Christian philosophy. Please return. <laughs> and whatever that is. Uh, can we recap simply? Do that for me, please. There's an outline. We've been saying. 
that there are basic three ways of looking at philosophy. You can either separate philosophy and theology, I mean theology and philosophy, or you can have them harmonizing, or you can have them sort of becoming one and one eating up the other. That's what we've been talking about. And we've been saying that um, Christianity actually has something to do with philosophy. And philosophy, uh, we, we, we are rather looking from the perspective, what can Christianity do for philosophy? And we've been talking about uh, what, where the conflict maybe can lie uh, within such, such a thing as, as a Christian philosophy. So I'm really trying to articulate what, what a Christian philosophy is. And I said, it is not the same thing as being a Christian. A Christian philosophy doesn't have to be every Christian. But it is, uh, since Christianity is true for all of life, you can also do this. You can be a Christian in your philosophy studies. Or just thinking. So I'm just not talking about philosophy. I'm talking about philosophy, an example of life. Is that where we are? Sort of? And we've been talking about Hegelianism. <laughs> we just came into the hard part of it. Okay. <laughs> uh, what have we been saying here? We've been saying that... It, I gave that as an example of someone trying to be Christian and sort of pantheist. Do you know what pantheist is? Yes. At the same time, and what conflict that might, might imply. And I also said that that was the, the uh, problem the first Christians had. They, they were arguing impersonal versus personal creation, um, truth versus relativism, and so on. And that's where we are. So, these pantheistic esoteric religions of, of the first century threatened to thwart Christian religion into subdivision of itself. Out of its controversy, the first apologists emerged and Christian had to, the Christians had to start to think philosophically. That is about the philosophical content, what philosophy is. The problem I tried to illustrate here is not so much the problem of a certain formal method, uh, though they sometimes coincide, as we've seen. Still, the real differences are much more clear on the material side. We've been dividing material and, and formal side of philosophy. Material dealing with logic, and material, uh, sorry, formal dealing with logic and the sort of ba- basic thought patterns that we follow, and material that is answering the basic questions of life. So I, I hope you can understand what I'm talking about when joining in here. Um, so let's revisit Christian philosophy for real men. Um, have we not this far already then indicated the material side or the content side of our Christian philosophy? as Christian and full stop. Yes, but without answering the initial question, which is, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? I would namely say that there are things that are not directly from Jerusalem uh, that are relevant in an interesting way and actually materially compatible with uh, Christian faith. Being a Christian... Should I read this to you? Yes, I should read this to you. Being a Christian, I believe this is ultimately so because all truths are God's truths. I think, for instance, it is no surprise that Plato or Aristotle have come to good use by Christian thinkers like Augustine and Aquinas. Augustine's mind, before his conversion to Christianity, was entrapped in a framework like that of Hegel or the Gnostic sects. It meant for him that he could not think of God as distinct from creation. 
He could not think of God being outside of time and space and being active in time or space, as Christian theism is claiming. Looking back on his life, Augustine wrote in his Confessions concerning this. He said, I had read the books of the Platonists and had been set by them towards the search for a truth that is incorporeal. I think it was your will, he's talking to God here, that I should come upon these books before I had made study of the scriptures, that it might be impressed on my memory how they had affected me. It seems that Augustine is here implicitly arguing for some basic elements of classic Platonic thought and Christian theism that overlaps. For him, this overlapping became the bridge to Christianity. Let me take another example as we've already talked about. Aristotle's metaphysics. Uh, it's one of my favorites, sorry. Despite its possible connotations or lack thereof, it is a piece of common sense thinking about, only on a deeper level about reality. He claims that there are things in the world with a certain regularity and nature and that these can have properties in different combinations. Uh, a piece of wood can change the properties of being a tree and be, uh, to being a table or, but still remain the same, same essential wood, the, have, still have the nature of wood. So basically, Aristotelian thinking about the world is that there is a world that exists in, inhibited, in, inhabited by substances and changing properties. Quite simple, really. It's, it's really how we view the world. We just don't talk very much about it. These things are hard to make materially incompatible with Christianity, especially since the Aristotelian, term, since the Aristotelian terms substance and nature are used by the early church fathers in the creed describing God's character in order to defend biblical faith. As a matter of fact, it is not more controversial that, than what you are, and I are doing today, using a vast array of psychological words and, and vocabulary, uh, be it Freudian or not, and apply it to Christian experience. Who would not accept uh, that the Christian conception of sin has dimensions that are helpfully expressed in psychological terms of uh, suppression, loss of identity and shame. I don't have any problem with that and most Christians don't because psychology seems to be a part of our reality. That fact, on the other hand, does not necessarily have to imply that Christianity is psychologically totally or totally explainable in such terms. Uh, and I also seen today working in Labrie with, with people uh, psychologically uh, plausibility is one of the highest criteria we have on something if it is not sort of working mentally or in my soul or with my emotions it is not something I want to have to do with so if Christianity is true it has to be true psychologically as well and we just take that for granted and it seems to be one of the most important criteria people have on Christianity today of course there are some fundamental conflicts that at play here as well but as a Christian, and at least not as a Christian philosopher, student or scholar, one can afford, hi there again, afford to be selective the way Augustine was. I do not have to buy into all of Freud's theories that religion is essentially suppressed sexuality just because I might have good use of his vocabulary and analysis. So, to complete my analogy, I can use for instance, Aristotle's term of nature about God without accepting his whole program. 
ago. So uh, this is the last point I'm going to make now. Um, I'm going to use Augustine even more towards a Christian philosophy. Thus far, I have covered the basics. Uh, if one should look for role models of Christian, uh, Christians engaging with culture and, and thought, we could look at many great thinkers through the ages. Augustine, arguing from the providence of God, saying that all things, all good things, be it silver or gold, philosophy or learning, are God-given things that should come under the leadership of Christ and given to us. Uh, let's hear him again. If those who are called philosophers, and especially the Platonists, have said uh, what uh, said that said what is true and in harmony with our faith, we are not only to shrink from it, but we are not only not to shrink from it, but to claim it for our own use from those who have unlawful possession of it. I would like to continue in a similar spirit as that of Augustine. My choice of Augustine is very straightforward. He is the most influential, used and commented post-biblical writer. The whole medieval and reformation spirituality and theology and, and, and culture are deeply shaped by Augustinian thought. Besides that, Jesus and Paul were not philosophers as Augustine was. There are simply few persons that could serve as a similar model. One central aspect of Augustine's thought is the centrality of faith. All investigations start with faith and, faith and return to faith. But this is not to be done blindfoldedly. He's, he says that arguments have a great role to play in the communication of faith. This does not imply infa infallibility on part of the believer in the sense that he cannot go wrong in thinking from faith. Errors, errors should be admitted and doubt should be taken serious is what Augustine is saying. From this basis, as a Christian thinker, Augustine could therefore claim autonomy. He was not ultimately dependent on non-Christian sources, though they are good. when they are good, uh, they are God-given things to be embraced. Instead, under this autonomy of the Christian, all things can fall into a greater framework of God's gracious act towards us in Christ's person and work, to which our lives are to be responses. Christ did not say to love him. Uh, Christ did say to love, tell us to love him uh, with all our being, heart, mind, and will. Human history and activity has meaning and a center in the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In the world, the Christian therefore has an important role, though not the main part. He has been given the command to cultivate the earth that God has created because it was good. From this status, the Christian or any other man is not at the center of the world. God is at the center of the world. Man is but a steward. History is a struggle between two opposing forces played out in history, between faith and unfaith, between the, the city of God and the city of, of, of the world, as Augustine says. The world drama is about the creation as a whole and particularly about the human soul. The intellectual struggles between humanism and Christianity is one of the subplots of this drama. Alvin Planting, as we already mentioned, I'm happy to hear, uh, one of the leading Christian philosophers has taken Augustine's insights further, saying that in the modern world there are two forces in the, in the city of the world, in the Kivitas Mundi, 
as uh, Augustine says, that are fighting against the good creation of God and the human soul. They are namely naturalism and relativism in their many forms and phases. And these are not just uh, merely academic ideas, but ideas permeating ordinary people of our time. It does not take much thinking to realize the amount of naturalism behind our consumer's culture or the role relativism play in an internet-based reality. But it is hard to understand one's own times. Still, this is Augustine's challenge to the Christian philosopher. Where are we? How did we get here? And where are we going? What are the common answers to the most important questions in life? Big questions, of course, but important ones. At the same time, Christians, people, Christians or not, stop asking them. Uh, life shrinks and becomes compartmentalized and eventually leads to chaos and death. Thinkers, humanists, philosophers might not be useful in society because they don't produce very much, but they are necessary, as my old Latin professor said. How many of the big changes in, in the world have not started in the realm of ideas. But how to understand our times? Well, one thing is clear. Having a firm grip of one's own worldview and then comparing it with others uh, is the first place to look. As with most common uh, education, it is not something that we are trained to do in schools. We are not trained to be conscious about worldviews. As a matter of fact, postmodernity denies the fact that there is such a thing as worldviews in the sense of a grand story, a plot, the meaning of life, that makes sense of it all, because the grand stories that has previously been suggested, i.e. Christianity, Marxism, capitalism, and all of that, have been abused, and therefore we should throw it all out, they say. Here the Christian should rise to his full length and give a healthy criticism, as a Christian, one is not allowed to thwart anything with Christianity because one is not in position to do so since one is merely a creature and not at the center of creation. Surely, postmodernity is right in that sense. Christianity has been used as a tool for oppression, but surely that is not a conclusive argument against its truth and validity. This critique has been answered by the Christian philosopher, as I would call him, Francis Schaeffer, also the founder of the Christian community where I happen to live and work. He tried to the best of his abilities to trace the roots of, the, of despair and loss of reality he saw people experience after the Second World War. In a very Augustinian way, he tried to single out the sources and explain them and their function in human history. In that way, he became one of the first, at least evangelical Christians, to speak with an autonomous voice in our age. He knew he was not God. Neither he, nor Hitler, nor any other man could claim the title. He told a sad story of how the Christian church had gradually adopted an anti-Christian way of thinking, calling it Christian, but only so by name and not in substance. Even if he did not get all the details right, maybe in history, he started something that inspired very many others, trying to understand the times from a Christian worldview and see what difference is make. A Christian philosopher's job description is partly therefore to unmask what is going on. So, what can the full arsenal of classical Christian do for philosophy, as we asked before? 
To borrow from planting again, a Christian philosopher or scholar or thinker or human being would need to have his own agenda and that Christian agenda uh, that in different ways would affect his way of thinking and behaving. This is not merely, uh, this is not meant in any coerced way like brainwashing or self-delusion. Rather, it is promoting intellectual honesty, not separating uh, secular and sacred. Today, it, is, it takes intellectual, moral uh, and courage to do so, at least in Europe, where the climate is hostile to classical uh, Christian thought. It does not, I would say, take the same and perhaps any kind of personal courage today to be an existentialist, uh, which is quite ironic if you know the roots of it. It does not take any personal courage to be a naturalist or relativist inside, out, inside or outside of academia. These are simply the established ways and normal uh, attitudes we have in society and academia. If you are a naturalist at home, you can be so at work or in school as well. Few would make life hard for you. Now many Christians in academia live under the pressures of these attitudes. They are forced to be Christians at home, but naturalists at work, uh, if they are biologists, for instance. Philosophy is not formed in a social and psychological vacuum. I'm soon finished. We have understood after Thomas Kuhn's um, groundbreaking explorations of how natural science developed that it is very much a social and organic development. A researcher, student or a common re reader of their books are in a social context of common sense understandings, values, ideas, economics and different worldviews competing at the same time. In the spirit of Marx, for instance, we, can, we could therefore ask, who is paying your salary at university? And discover the web of power structures and influences guiding higher education today. Being a Christian philosopher should therefore not naively be equated with only books and ideas outside of a social realm. Christian is, mainly the, is the main social identity marker in Christian philosophy and not philosophy. Philosophy is merely the social pond where he or she happens to swim. One important aspect, or duty even, of a Christian philosopher or of the Christian philosopher is, according to, is accordingly to investigate and argue with the presuppositions of itself and all other branches of thinking in culture at large. This includes everything from spotting inconsistencies in public politics to criticizing art, thinking about morals and much more. Philosophy per se has therefore a very interesting position in relation to, to everything else because it is not pressured to produce anything really in the same way. Therefore, philosophy and especially Christian philosophy with its, with its autonomous voice can therefore still retain the free status of criticizing all other disciplines and areas of life since all have something of a philosophy at its foundation. Thank you for bearing with me. You've done very well. You have not formed to state. Uh, sorry for taking so long, but I, I appreciate your, your questions uh, during my reading of it. I didn't know what to expect, so I just read it out loud. I hope you got it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, sure. Yes, I would be honored to do so. Since, uh, yeah, he he started the the Christian community and started Center Colabri, which I'm living in and, and working up in in Greta Maus out of Petersfield. He started that really in Switzerland. He he started Labri in Switzerland 50 years ago, uh, and he did that after the Second World War, uh, where people were very disillusioned. Dissolution, um, and not knowing where to go. Existentialism was in vogue, and uh, a lot of hippie culture. So, by divine providence, I guess people started to come into their house, having basic Bible studies and asking philosophical questions at the same time. And from there on, it went. And today, there are I think about five or ten um, libraries around the world where people come, live, uh, and study. And get me right, Labrie and Francis Schaeffer and all of that, it's not all about ideas. Definitely not. It is at the most 50%. I hope less. <laughs> because it is talking about all of reality. It is talking about Christ's uh, leadership and, and lordship over all of life. Meaning that if you're, whatever you're doing, it, it, uh, you, you could uh, do it as a Christian, uh, unless it's not sinful. And, but this is not the way we, we've been taught in church. So there is this conflict. And today we have many people coming with bad church experiences, coming to us and sort of giving Christianity as a last chance, sort of. And, and, and one of the wonderful things we see is that uh, Christianity is played out in relationship between people. Because half day we study and half day we um, uh, do something practical because that's the, pla- the place is run like that all the libraries so you might be gardening you might be washing up you might be cooking or something else and you see people with different uh, backgrounds and you talk and you discuss and you meet a new face really from maybe from the other side of the world um, and that is the rest hospitality is, is, is a big thing in, in, in library um, and uh, yeah library just started uh, without any now we're going to start Labri. Just people start to come there, and then suddenly they s- saw that okay, this is something going. Here's something going. Let's do it. And Francis Schaeffer started to put out his books uh, or his talks, really, because he didn't want to record as as we're doing right now. Uh, so then he just uh, printed out whatever his talks was, and he produced about 20 books. The most famous one maybe is. Um, the God Who's There, or Escape from Reason, dealing with what, at more depth, what, what I've been saying here about the roots of despair and, and, and loss of reality and, and the questions of our time in postmodernity. He was one of the very first Christian, very very first Christians, really, who, who addressed the problem of postmodernity. He was one of the first who knew the word even and, and know what it meant. Uh, so that made him unique. Um, and yeah, it just flowed out of that. I, I think he influenced, among the philosophers I mentioned in the beginning, I, I think he influenced half of them to do what they do uh, in, in one way or another. He was not a professional philosopher. He was a theologian and apostle, pure evangelist in one sense. But he, he, he had a great heart for people and culture. And it's not all about philosophy. It's art. Art is a big thing. If you play music, yes. Amen. Uh, all of that uh, that's him um, 
I think personally his best book is called True Spirituality. Um, it is not a philosophical book. It is a book about Christian life. I like that best. Well, the other books about They're about um, the history of ideas and and how how Christianity has declined. The first you mentioned the part of the trilogy. Yeah, and the third one is called I forgot it. Uh, the church at the end of the 20th century might be. No, it's not. Um, he's there and he's not silent I think the third one is called yeah but I mean if you read the, the God who's there you get his program and he's dealing with a lot of he covers a lot of ground there he's dealing with all of life really all areas art um, uh, morals and so on so that, that's that's Francis and we try to uh, live in the in the do yeah, do the same thing in one sense. But there are new challenges today, definitely. People are more introspective. People tend not to have the kinds of questions, not have questions at all when they come. Actually, there's a sort of apathy among people today, more and more. So, yeah, th- this, is, this is the interesting thing. People came in the 60s smoking pot, sitting on the, on the, in, the, in the window, sort of, and, and just throwing, I don't believe that, you know, that, that's the attitude or that's the... Scenario, I've been told, but today people come and they're sort of usually come from Christian, very conservative, legalistic, uh, sort of very dark, enclosed places, and and they come to us and, and sort of are totally de- de- destroyed psychologically sometimes, and and uh, just from their church experience. So what we do is try to bring out the questions of life, and hopefully they come to life with with God's help. Um, so sometimes people come and spend a whole term just looking for the question. What is my question? What's that? Well, the question might be more revealing than the answer to these people, actually. Because they've been told what Christianity is all their life, but they, they, they don't know why. And then, uh, this is one typical uh, library student. And then you have the classical, the one who always asks. You would be a, an excellent lovely student. Can I ask a question? Yeah. What kind of like books would you recommend? Well, the ones apart from those. Yeah. Um, you mean in, in terms of Christian? Just, just like, just yeah, just for like anyone who might not have a complete background. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the ones you already mentioned, Moreland and and Craig and Plantinga, they are sort of the leading Christian philosophers, and you have a few others, but they 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 especially not Plantinga so much, but Craig and Moreland really do a good job and try to. Thank you, coming. They do a good job trying to uh, make Christianity public and 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 for lay people. Uh, yeah yeah th- th- I think they're doing a good job but you have um, if you want to have someone who deals more depth with post-modernity and engage more with, with that you would have um, Merrill Westfall <laughs> Merrill Westfall he, he's very good Westfall uh, W-E-S-T 
P-H-A-L. Meryl. M. 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 M was for. So you think guys like Seth and Fattinger and Richard Schweinman, they're kind of more academic? Yeah, well, they're not trying that hard to make it accessible. Um, Plantinga more, yeah, has, has tried a couple of times, and Swinburne, no, not really. Yeah, he did a couple of books. So well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I read their stuff, and I like it. But, but it's not really boiled down to, to uh, undergraduate or, or under undergraduate. Well, he's got that whole yeah. It, 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 I don't know, I reckon Christians should get a hang of it. Yeah. Yeah. Craig did a good job in a book called Four or Five Views on Apologetics. There are these books, Five Views and Four Views of, and he he uh, he argues with uh, or from planting as warranted series. Uh, about that Christians really should take more advantage of planting as work because it's groundbreaking and he uses it in his classical apologetics and, uh, well, it's kind of like, cause so he, he explains it very easy there I yeah, think I saw like that Richard Dawkins book yeah and he was sort of going around I heard about that yeah he was sort of going around giving it the um, it's called the Roots of Lethal. Yeah, but he was giving him like the old um, what's the philosophy theory that positivism is. You know, like where you can't say anything about metaphysics because you don't. Yeah, positivism. Basically, he yeah. would. If he would be. Love you, I'm just thinking, man, that's well out of date now. But like, no one is watching that. He's like, gonna, and like he's questioning Christians. Who yeah. Like pretty much for me because of kind of. Pr- pre- well, they're pretty much like from yeah. you know the outback or whatever. Yeah. So they're not going to question anything he's saying because he's really, you know he's intelligent and they're like fundamentally. Well, the problem with but this is the thing, like yeah. he's asking them where's your faith, how do you prove, you know, and it's like well if they knew planting God, what you say, like they'd be able to like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. the whole amount of slight theory and take on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem with De- Dembski is that he is not a thought-through scientist. Yeah. Or uh, who Dawkins, did Dawkins? Sorry. Yeah, Dawkins. No, no. He seems to be like pretty. Um, he, he's not thought through. He, he, and he just kind of thinks alike materially, yeah. and if you haven't got, but like if you actually read philosophy, it's not even like. Yeah, he he should have a class in logic or something. Yeah. Um, I think. If, if it's any help, I mean, people I spoke to who watched the program, the people who are not Christians, have kind of recognised that the the program was blatantly very biased. Um, hmm. So it was disappointing. Mm-hmm. They they said to see this professor who they've heard the name of, you know, uh, this this guy, supposedly intellectual, present the program that it was so blatantly biased in one direction. Yeah rather than giving at least, he wasn't even at least trying to do an impartial kind of account, he was just going saying, I think this, 
this is all rubbish, look, I've proved it. It's yeah. Really, it's just the people the other one you Yeah. It's just the people you interview. It's like, they just blatantly pick them out to give you like religion a bad name. And like, I did a good job as you interviewed a Muslim fundamentalist who said Islam's going to take over the world. Mm. You know, nothing you can do about it. And then, so he's interviewing some Christian in like the deep south or whatever who was like um, saying, yeah. you know, people who do abortion went to hell. Or, you know, it makes it look really bad. Yeah. yeah. But I was just seeing that like really angry and thinking, why doesn't he take on a Christian with a brick? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's my point. That's what I mean. I think yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Just for Christians, they, they need to develop a Christian mind because the Christian mind doesn't have to be this afraid for that kind of. What's that? Yeah, that, that's a good book, actually. Yeah. 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 I was just surprised that that program like that on Channel 4. I used to quite like Channel 4. Channel 4 used to be pretty. Yeah. Things like I really have respect for Channel 4. I was really surprised that we put it on a program like that that was so biased in one direction. Yeah. I was told on BBC Horizon we did another program that's similar, but at least but that was a bit. That was main thing in the design. They're like, stuck them on yeah. for like 10 minutes, so they're like really dense people. Yeah. yeah. And then like the rest of the show, they gave Richard Dawkins like the floor. <laughs> and like, it made it look like he basically said everything. William Densky said before it was like a load of crap. You know yeah. I mean? And he's like, I don't know, but yeah. Wonderful. Mm. Mm. There wasn't like a debate, you know what I mean? It was just like. Mm-hmm. Mm. But yeah. So that's my frustration that I feel like Christians haven't got a clue. Mm. Yeah. But like, what do you do about it? We need Christian astrophysics who can answer this. <laughs> No, I, seriously, I think we, we need someone who, who steps out of their sort of uh, academic uh, like comfort and, and can speak from, that, from that, I think. Christians don't really care either. Like, they don't care that they've got brains. Mm. Like, I don't think generalized too, but mm. they don't care. They just say, oh, we've got faith in their yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're like, you know, yeah, but if you want to talk to people, I mean, mm. a lot of Christians say apologetics is no use and Mm-hmm. Philosophy is no use because it's up to God to like. It is. Converse. You know, it is, man, but like, mm. there's no reason to say that like, you're all in time and have a, a say in like, someone's conversion. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Another change topic. Can you recommend anything by Augustine to read? Um, I've not read any of that mm. What's that? Yeah. I, I don't think I, I, I do recommend it. But I mean, you have to read those sources a little bit selectively and historically informed. They, well, they, they can be read, read on their own merits. Um, but there are things that are sort of quite repulsive in them. And so Repugnant. Uh, but but I, I I think his um what would be a good book by Confessions is my favorite book definitely. The so I've, I've seen and read it Yeah, have you read it? Uh, oh yeah. I mean that, that, that's I read it three times and it's still it's the book that I'm going to read the rest of my life. It's it's okay. it's one of my favorite books. Uh, I don't like everything in it, of course, but but it it, it gives you a good idea of what, what yeah. 
Do you know something about synthesis with uh, philosophy and theology? What Augustine says? Well, just like Augustine and Aquinas. I mean, do you feel by taking the whole Greek thing, is that a bad effect on the church and kind of biblical interpretation? Well, what, what I was trying to say that, or Augustine tried to say, uh, is that uh, wherever you find something that is of use for the Christian church, it is a God-given gift by providence, he would say. Uh, and that is not because it is something extra outside of Christianity that have a higher value, because what he's saying that if Christianity is true, it's true for all of reality, and therefore all of reality is God's reality. And whatever you find there out there that is not sort of talked about in the Bible, uh, it is something that you can have good use of. Uh, and what's that? Augustine said that, yeah. What's that? Yeah, I mean, and, and, I, and my, my case was that uh, Schaeffer was an August, Augustinian thinker because Augustine has shaped this, um, as I would say, this um, harmony between faith and reason. And, and where you can find harmony you, in, in contemporary thinkers or, or good thinkers through the ages, you, you would have, they would probably have read Augustine because I think there is no one who, who did, did it better than him, really. I was kind of thinking more like, um, say, like the movement in evangelical kind of theology today. Hmm. It's more like going back to the kind of Jewish background to the Bible. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, centuries up until recently. Yeah. It's kind of been <coughs> you think about people who write, read. No, no, just, or just like, I mean, just like certain theologians. Like yeah. Okay. They're looking at the history and the, you know, the theology of like Judaism, you know, yeah. the Bible, yeah. as opposed to like kind of looking at it from a Platonic or an Aristotelian sort of mindset. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and try to have a conflict there between those. That's what I meant. I was saying earlier about the Trinity. Yeah. You know, if not A, then B. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that yeah. Well, I, I think I think they're making a bad, not thought through argument if they're saying that there is a conflict uh, of of um, between those two. Of course, there are conflicts in that, but I mean, it's not a complete conflict because um, what the Greeks were doing was doing something in an area of life. Um, a social thing. They were doing philosophy. They were thinking about life, uh, which became a school subject as a, a way of analyzing reality, just as chemistry is or psychology or anything. And, and they were sort of drawing up this, these ways of looking at reality. And that would, I mean, uh, we don't have any problem with doing, doing that usually in other areas of life. Uh, so why is the problem with philosophy? Is is the rather way? Like yeah. Yeah, but I I, I I I think the the objection needs to be very much more articulate to say than just to say that well, uh, Greek and Hebrew thought are are in complete collision course with each other. No, no, yeah. but like the, the Hebrews were like pretty, um, I won't say anti hellenistic but you know they were quite separated from 
Well, how? Yeah, well, well, I would say how is it? And and saying saying Greek. What what is Greek? What is what is Greek? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of biblical interpretation, it does, it's not always helpful knowing loads of Greek philosophy. No. If that's what they're saying, this yes. Is What's that? This is Augustine. Augustine, yeah, I mean, he, he is, I mean, he, he is the main source for the reformers. Uh, and, I mean, his, his biblical commentaries doesn't, you, you don't find much philosophy in that. He, he, often when he refers to philosophers, he's saying that they're, they're usually wrong. Uh, because they, they don't have revelation, they start from another starting point. They, know, they don't start from faith, uh, and and so I mean, it's not like he he's trying to assimilate the two things as as one of the positions went. Uh, he he's trying to find harmony where there is harmony. So there are he's saying that some things are compatible uh, with, with Christian faith. I would think that some 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 philosophical thinking uh, would be helpful in our understanding of the Bible. Um, sometimes, uh, for instance, using I mean, when we where do, if you're just reading the Bible and just reading biblical sources, you wouldn't easily get to the idea of a Trinity, uh, or at least you couldn't defend it against others. You would need to step out of that. It doesn't have to be Aristotelian, but it just happened to be the way people talked and find it, found it compatible. Today we would probably have very much more psychological language. We would, we would talk perhaps about the three selves in God instead of three persons in God. But I, I think, I, I, I just think that that is a way of trying to make it, um, uh, you know, communicated to, to, to normal people or to, to people of our day or uh, because, yeah, see the people who, who's, who, who who think they only can use the biblical language when they're talking about Christianity. They don't come very far. Yeah, but it's also when, when we talk about interpretation of the Bible, you, you can't just. Yeah. Really speaking about apologetics here, uh, but if, if you if you're interested in, in apologetics, I, I think it. Yeah. Doesn't work well on the streets. Yeah. So like, yeah. I have to go into. Yeah. I have a, I have a, <coughs> 
Um, although like, the philosophy of the Hebrews was different from the philosophy of the Greeks and the kind of language they used and the way they thought about things. It's not that you know one is legitimate and the other is illegitimate. Mm-hmm. It's just that different kind of languages of expressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So although to understand the Bible, we need to kind of get to the mind of the maybe it's more of a human mind. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't mean the truth that we discover in there can't be communicated in a philosophical language. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that is, yeah. But there is a danger of, you know, taking a kind of Greek mindset on and then. Yeah. Ju- just being in that mindset when you're reading the Bible. Mm hmm. Yeah. And reading it in one way. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, but. but yeah. I don't think it's just a matter of language, though. That, that it's cultures, yeah. worldviews. Yeah, worldviews. Content. Yeah. I mean, it's just more like, I guess, Greek thoughts more abstract. And like, more concrete. Well, when you say Greek, it is a... Well, Greek it, is it, it is, it is a big thing. Yeah, okay, I mean... Oh, even bigger oh, than Greek. Greek. Yeah, oh yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Like it's more like I, I don't I don't know what that objection would mean really. Uh, uh, really. <laughs> well, but but but. But like yeah. 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 But, but I think it's better to to ask the question: What can Christianity do for philosophy? That is the better question than, than to ask what can Christianity do, what, what can philosophy do for your Christianity, for your biblical interpretation or whatever. Uh, if we ask that other question, what Christianity can do for philosophy, we can then have a Christian philosophy that might be in, informative of our interpreting the Bible. Maybe. But philosophy is, is a thing in and of itself, it seems, today, just as psychology or just as astrophysics. It is an area of study. And how how are you a Christian in that? That, that? that is a more interesting question than trying than than trying to find all the problems. Of course, you will hit problems here too, but uh, not the same kind. I think. Why do you think there's been a kind of? What's that? Um, why do you think there's been a kind of um, resurgence in Christian philosophy, like in recent years? Why, why there's been a yeah, why do you think there's been a tide of change towards people? post-modernity right. yeah open it up well it, it opened up that, uh, because bef- just after, up until the war the second world war and after the second world war sort of the, the achieved either you were an existentialist or you were an analytic philosopher and there was not very much in between. But then postmodernity came to criticize both of these positions, really, maybe more with a favor towards existentialism, and open up a philosophy should be a plurality of schools, ideas, and competing with each other because it, it was really a uh, static war that it wasn't really exciting, uh, and and therefore you couldn't be a Christian and a philosopher because f- first you had to be existentialist or analytical. And maybe 
you could become a Christian. You could be a Christian. You, I could name very few Christian philosophers from this time. One of the few would be uh, Frederick Copleston, uh, famous. Yeah, I mean, he would be one of the few really Christian minds of this time, but C.S. Lewis would be another one. Um, G.K. Chesterton and, and others. Uh, not professional philosophers, but definitely philosophical. Yeah, I mean, he, he understood, what he understood was, was that your Christianity is, is not just a privileged sphere. It is about all of life. And he, he, he did just that in a, in a little way of trying to understand what epistemology had, had done to, to, to the modern mind. The modern mind, before planting, I really had said that uh, if, if, if you have knowledge, you have to be able to prove it scientifically. But he said something differently. He liked kind of the mind, the whole rationalist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as a Christian, you, you're not entitled to do anything. You, you don't. You're not bound to to those um, canons of thinking, really, because it was com- conventions that were really strong. Uh, so he opened it up, among others. But he he was one of the first Christians who really did it. And gone on doing it. I must say that I think. Just for me personally, uh, I'm starting to come to terms with it more now. But I think um, post-modernity, whatever it is, um, movement or culture, um, or just an attitude to life in, in, in the twin, late 20th century, it, it kind of uh, it helped me a bit. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I, I started struggling with Christianity mm-hmm. about maybe five, six years ago, mm-hmm. um, wondering what is it that I know. Then, I, 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 in my uh, postgraduate studies, I delved into modernism and postmodernism, mm. and it actually freed me. Oh, yeah. I, I, can, I presume I'm grace of it, I took a year out, mm-hmm. uh, where I just decided to, in a way, do or think whatever I wanted, mm-hmm. uh, mm. questioning everything I read even in the Bible, which I used to be a separate mm, mm. And because now I, I learn, like, for example, the, the NIV translation has made a few mistakes, and mm. with regards to personal trinity, gender issues, and suddenly I thought, you know, there's so many problems, you know, what do I believe in anymore? What mm. can I depend on? Mm. So I, I took a year out where I believed in nothing, mm. but that Jesus died for my sins. Mm. Anything else that's secondary about sex before marriage, abortion, whatever. I just treat them as really mm. secondary issues. I mm. just try to focus on one thing and, and mm. that's it. Mm. And personal actually helped me because it, it, it just, it questioned everything. Yep. The grand narratives they are. So I questioned everything my friends thought, were Christians and non-Christians. It actually freed me up and, and I came back to Christianity best, uh, I think, after that one year. I mm. don't know why, but but most Christians who might, might told that, oh, you know, I've actually quite like this one as men, and the culture that came with it, you, you always get a really bad reaction. Mm-hmm. Like, how can you be a Christian and like that? But it actually helped me. Oh, yeah. so, I don't know if you know anyone else who went through that, but I oh, think yeah. it helped me quite a bit. I, I guess I did too. Uh-huh. Something very similar. Oh, okay. Right, so I'm not yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm post-modern. 
postmodernity has been a blessing to the church in many ways. I thought so, yeah. Definitely, no doubt. But in the Christian Union, when they do like evangelism training, it's always seen as the, the devil, you know. Yeah. Um, it's been given that name and they, for right and wrong reasons. Yeah. No. And they once they once had this campaign where you there's this computer software where you put it in and you make people do a questionnaire and find out what is their worldview. Yeah. That's fine as far as people who don't really think very much. But yeah. if you read all these questions, it's very geared towards evangelical Christianity, you know, what do you believe, do you believe that? So just for the fun of it, I thought I'll do my own. Yeah. So I kind of did a multiple choice. And I, you could tell straight away which are the standard Christian answers that they want. So I yeah. just did it the way I actually felt at that time. Yeah. And I came out as a nihilist. Uh. Even though I still believed in Jesus, which I thought was quite funny. Um, <laughs> the ideal answer is you would be a theist, but I came out as a nihilist only because I answered one question differently. I said, do you believe wow. in a specific morality? At that point in time, for me, I believe, I believe in Jesus. I wasn't sure about whether morality is important to me at that time, whether it's do right or wrong. I believe in if you get right with God, then everything starts to come into place as your bad habits go out of the window. But as a gospel, you believe in just a strict morality, yeah. you know. And I thought I just said no. Yeah. And that made me a nihilist just because I asked that one differently, and that was really that's scary. Yeah. I think. And they're doing this as a campus-wide crusade thing. I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's a modernist evangelical yeah. who, uh, who 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 writes uh, uh, people like that yeah, and yeah. answers quite. And, and the back of the sheet of the questions they had a list of all the different mm. philosophical ways of thinking, so yeah. that they can question yeah. people on the street. Yeah. But that makes philosophy even more important and interesting, I think. Yeah. Because it per- permeates everything. Christians, even if they claim not to be. They have taken a strong stance on philosophy. Yeah, there is a philosophy, but this is what I'm saying about Christians need to get mature views of mm-hmm. rather than just you know do the Bible, but I think say that's evil. Yeah. Know, then, like, <laughs> don't mm. even try to understand yeah. this people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I did, I did go to an apologetics training thing. There's mm-hmm. a Ramsey Zacharias yeah. ministry. Yeah. There's one in the UK. I went for the student training just to see what it's like. Um, I think thanks to Michael Ramsey, who's the director, because mm. he's, he's quite into philosophy. Yeah. There's yeah. a very strong philosophical slant to that, which was helpful. If not, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been so helpful. So I really benefited from just hearing Michael Ramsey. Yeah, he's very good. Um, yeah. And I, I didn't realise actually what he was doing was what he wrote here, the uh, law of excluded middle. Because mm-hmm. the way he the way he rationalises in his talks, he always does this. You know, he he always likes to start of his talks with people say that there is no truth. But he said if you say that there is no truth, you just make a truthful statement. Which yeah. Contradicting yourself. Yeah. I always like to do that. I realise that's actually bad. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So. Ask one more question. Maybe, maybe, maybe. you I'm having lunch somewhere. <laughs> Just about Christians, right? Um, do you think the reason Christians are afraid of different schools of thought is because they're afraid different, of different schools of thought? Thought, yeah. Yeah. The reason they're afraid, in a way, is because they're afraid they're going to lose their faith and they don't want to tackle things yeah. head on, you know what I mean? And learn about other things because they feel. 
How, how do you meet Christians who have this phobia? Or well, they won't admit that I have a phobia, but like, it seems to me obvious yeah. that's what's going on. And like, yeah. I'm like, you know, don't listen to heavy metal. Don't, yeah. don't get into post-modernism. Yeah, yeah. to be honest... You know, it's like, oh, yeah. Satan's going to influence To be honest, I think the battle goes on even if they're left behind. The, the battle goes on even if they're left behind. Even if my grandma is dead now, bless her, never read a book of philosophy uh, and sort of was afraid, or better take my aunt because she's still alive and she, she's afraid of philosophy she, she's concerned for me done philosophy and all that and she prays for me every time she sees me <laughs> <laughs> and I, I find it quite amusing I, I, I given up hope trying to convince her and, and make her understand what I'm doing but I think if she at least can get so, so, so far along that she she's Praying for me to do what I'm doing and doing it well, or because I need I need prayer not to to get too attached to it, to be a philosophical Christian instead of a Christian philosopher. Uh, I I think she's right in that. So I I I I'm happy there are people who are afraid because there is a real danger, definitely. But but I, we shouldn't make everyone philosophers. But we we should understand that there are basic philosophical questions. Even if you don't use the language or the name. We need some fundamentalists then, just to keep us away. Yeah. But there are there are certain minds who are more philosophically minded. Yeah. Uh, I, I asked my, my first philosophical question when I was five. I, 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 I remember walking alongside with my dad. It was just a beautiful day and everything was as normal. And I just suddenly asked, what if all this is not real? And the curious mind of a, of a, of a five-year-old boy. And I, I don't think I was very special in that way. Everyone has... You, how many of you have thought, um, what if I am just a little piece of something bigger, that is something bigger, that is something bigger, like in Men in Black? Yeah, I always have yeah. that in my mind. What about this little thing? Yeah. Or thought about infinity. How far is infinity? How far is far? <laughs> sort of? What if my life's a dream? What, what if my life's a dream? Yeah. Well, but it, it, I mean, we we don't. That that's that's humanity. We have those questions from early age, and they, they come out in different ways and in different times. I've always asked people when I was a little kid. I do remember this. You know, what happens when we die? Yeah. No one liked that question. Metaphysical questions. The metaphysical anxiety. And also, based on my education, I was just. Try to avoid it, you know. mm. Especially as a little kid, you know, yeah. don't corrupt this mind. Death is a gift and it's a threat at the same time. Yeah. That's what they feel. Existentialism told us that 100 years ago, 200 years ago almost. How about Ecclesiastes told us it? Too many years ago. There you go. Too far. Too far. You're a philosopher, you don't have to know about exegetics and stuff. <laughs> Biblical history. Oh, Who cares? <laughs> you had a Paul Ricoeur. You must have done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I started reading him for my for my for my research, um, and strange enough, he was recommended to me by my academic supervisor. He said, "Oh, he's a philosopher, philosopher slash theologian. You might want to read him for your thesis." I was like, oh, 
What, what are you studying? I'm, I'm doing English literature. Um, one of the topics is forgetting and forgiveness. I've realised it's for, forgiveness. The concept of forgiveness. Ah. It's originally going to be memory and forgetting, but now it's memory forgetting with forgiveness and kind of grace at the end of it. Oh, um, wow. It's That's I was reaching that conclusion, which I didn't expect to, because I thought God was completely left out of my creation thesis. Uh, my supervisor mentioned, oh, try this guy. And I realised he's a Christian. I was like, oh, well, you know, so, um, which I, I never realised. So, yeah, Paul, I yeah. to read his work. Paul Vicar is well worth reading. Yeah. You, you want to read Mayor Westfall as well, then? Because Westfall, no, he, I think he wrote his thesis on, on Ricoeur and was one of the first evangelicals who so made sense of it. Biblical hermeneutics. I thought Hukon I mentioned him, but I never read it. Okay. I mean, his big one is time and narrative, but he's also done specific stuff on biblical interpretation like Job, Genesis and uh, well, he, he always says right at the beginning I am not a theologian so forgive my mistakes or whatever but he could he say that 15 years ago but not anymore <laughs> yeah, 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 this is a long time ago but he, he died recently and, and yeah. I think he's brought a lot to literary and biblical interpretation so I'm not sure for the biblical side of things which one's worth reading but oh yeah, um, biblical theologians read with her do they? Ooh, there time. is one are there any books you haven't known of Ricoeur's on the top of your head apart from time and narrative that you've heard of? Uh, I wouldn't remember the title of them. But, but I, I know that the leader of, the leader of Switzerland wrote also his doctoral thesis on Ricoeur and biblical interpretation. Okay. Uh, what I understand from it is very good. Uh, I read parts of it. He's the easiest one I've read in terms of philosophy. I'm, I'm only quite, quite difficult to read, but I find You find recur easy? easy? Easier than some I've read. Oh, it's easy to consider more difficult. Well, not necessarily, but I, I find him quite, quite hard. Who, who's the most intense philosopher you've ever read? Is it Spinoza? I just want to know, because I've heard he's the most talented. Uh, intense philosopher? There would probably be Hegel, actually. <laughs> or... What about Spinoza? Did you read anything? I read a little bit of Spinoza now. They're hard to get. I, I think actually Derrida is, is one of the most intense philosophers. Who is he? Uh, Jacques Derrida. One of oh, the well, something considered but philosophy. Uh, though. Uh, no, he, he's all over the map. I keep, he keeps sounding like he negates himself, but you know, every paragraph is just He wants to. Oh, well, that's the point, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything about Westfall that you can recommend then for my research? Yes. Um, beyond ontho-anthology. Ontho-theology, sorry. <laughs> beyond ontho-theology. Beyond ontho-theology. Ontho-theology. Wow, okay. Uh, well, just to look at... Is this called beyond God then? No, it is beyond the modernist God. Yeah, the kind of God that Nietzsche was arguing against, say. Okay, I'll just Yeah, well, anything on Westfall would. Uh, just look at the titles, and uh, because they're usually quite telling what they're about. And about we have some tapes at Lerby, uh, that he, um, lectures he did at Lerby. One on Lyotard, uh, one on, on the great. This Masters of Suspicions. Of suspicion. He, he, has, he has reading the Masters of Suspicion for Lent kind of thing. Right. 
so in Lent time, he, he's, there's a book about this. I, I think he's reading them in Lent. And, and he's really pulling out of uh, Marx, Nietzsche, and, and Freud the, the, the sort of healthy criticism of, of Christianity. Of course, he, he, he twists it a little bit, but he is really engaging with postmodern thought in, in a, I think, fruitful way. Okay. He won't stand on his own, but I mean, he, he has uh, some good thinking. Is it worth reading planting as well for my research? Or, or you're, you're doing English? I think that's a little bit far. You would like to read, oh yeah, you would like to read. Um, Moreland has one good article on, on biblical interpretation and planting a. I don't know where it is and what it's called. But what you want to read is Kevin Van Hooser. Kevin with a K yeah. and then Van Hooser like in the Dutch name <laughs> a lot of consonants <laughs> uh, V-A-N-O-O-Z-E-R Van Hooser and he has uh, many books but um, I think is there a meaning in this text would be very interesting for you He's, he's dealing with literary criticism and biblical hermeneutics and he's using Plantinga and he's using Derrida and he's using Ricoeur and all of these mention, ma- names were mentioned. But he's also using Augustine and he's also using Calvin. But Yeah, he, he is great. Y- you want to read him? Is he still alive? Yeah, he's, I don't think he's 50 even. <laughs> he, how about, how about finding uh, I just got a book by him. Oh, which, which, which one? Just called Metaphysics. Oh, the revised version? You want yes. to have the revised Yeah, it's a good. It, it's good. Yeah. We're having a time of your life. Van Hooser? Yeah, you want to read Van Hooser. He, he has one called. Yeah, oh, you take it. V A N H O. Thank you, Anthony. I'm glad you came. And yeah, welcome up to Brett and many times. Are you rest are you rested?